I had stuffed a little orange juice I worked so hard to hide that there. I thought it was really... Do you have an extra Dr. Pepper? I know. He didn't bring me one. Could you, dear, get me... Oh, is she... Katrina's bringing me one? Good. Yeah. I forgot my Coke today. I have a note right here, though, that says, Find the clock. And that, the reason I couldn't thank you, Katrina, very much. The reason I couldn't find the clock is simple, because you can't see it. It's the dark back there. Now I at least know where it is. It doesn't mean I'll pay attention to it, but I know where it is. Well, we're working on that. We'll have a whiteboard here, we hope, in a couple of weeks as well. And so... That's uh, that's our big plan. November 15th. Am I being recorded, Pat? November 15th, 2009. Lecture discussion number last week continued. Or still waiting for the dry erase board uh, or the dust to settle. Either one of those three. I, I don't really have an, a number because we're going to return to Zechariah 11, and of course that's Judas uh, as well. Judas and Zechariah 11, Matthew 12 all fit together. We're going to get to 17.8 uh, because that's a description of the, of the Antichrist through time. Very important 17.8 of Revelation. And then of course that throws in the hardening of Pharaoh. So that's where we're trying to get. When we get the dry erase board, we'll have that back and that'll be I think lecture number seven. So again, we really don't have a numbering for these that I've done. These interlude lectures are transitory or if you wish are moving Smythe lectures here. Pardon me? Oh, bonus. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Frankly, what I'm doing, though, as you know, I'm trying to tread water until we can get stabilized. And yes, I'm fully aware that when we finally become stabilized or stable, it'll be the first time for Cliffside. So, yeah. We endeavor to persevere, nonetheless, our long, torturous journey here uh, to maturity. And we are weavers and zigzaggers, I know that, and that's the way we've always been. And we've, I've always gone off into little tangents, and that uh, makes this all the more so. Where we are this evening is pretty much where we were last Sunday. If you were here last Sunday, I was faking it last Sunday. I had all the material. In fact, I had too much material, but my goal was to just try to get us through it. Um, and we were going through biblical holism versus traditional orthodox dualism. This is a traditional orthodox uh, dualistic church. Uh, and it's very important that you know that. And maybe um, a little bit of Hebrews 10, we'll throw that in since it's inevitable that Hebrews 10 comes into the fray whenever you're talking about radical dualism and biblical holism. Probably need to define it because I can see there's a few people that weren't here. It really is immortality or resurrection. The biblical holism movement says that when you die, 
you die. You cease to exist for a period of time. And if you are saved, God will resurrect you or that Christ will resurrect you. But upon your death is cessation of existence. And in that sense, it's monism, which means the body, the soul, the spirit is all one thing. That's what they call whole, W-H-O-L-ism, holism. Your body, your soul, your spirit are one thing. And that when you die... Because of the death of the physical, the entire spirit, your consciousness, your being, ceases to exist. Versus what's called radical dualism or dualistic thinking, which says that no, you are a immaterial or a supernatural or a metaphysical part component and a natural physical component. And both of those components interact in a radical way. Your supernatural element is controlling your physical body. It's radically connected. And that is what's called radical dualism. It's essentially immortality or resurrection. That's how they feed it, or that's how they bring it out to you, and that is exactly correct. We are either immortal, or we cease to exist until we're resurrected. And then we're given immortality only to the resurrected, and the unsaved, what happens to them? Continue cessation of existence, or if they are raised for judgment, then they are annihilated. And they are annihilated because why? Huh? Because they're bad? Well, kind of. They're annihilated, really, as an indictment against God. If God does not indict them, then what is he? Or does not annihilate them, what is he? He's unfair. Because it's not fair to put somebody into judgment forever. So God is wicked. And it's an indictment on his character. So cessation of existence or everlasting continued existence, what's called the, uh, and what's in between those two is the intermediate state. The intermediate state being a, a place of consciousness where, and being where you are in one of two destinies. You are either with God or apart from God, but you are not yet in the lake of fire and you are not lake yet in the eternal state. So that's called the intermediate state or the disembodied state by us dualists. And the biblical holism movement says there's no such thing as an intermediate state. So there you go. That's where we were last week. Didn't really get very far into the discussion as usual um, because I wanted to establish the uh, difference between man, actually man's predisposition towards getting stuff. Man likes to get anything. We are, we have this kind of, I don't know, drive in us. We want to get literally anything. We'll pursue anything but wisdom. We're not interested in wisdom. We're interested in stuff. And we want our stuff. And, and we don't pay any attention to wisdom as God defines it. And we are commanded. The Bible does the opposite of that. While we're pursuing stuff and our junk, and listen, we just moved a bunch of So I'm particularly upset about it. Now, it's all in my garage. And then in my garage, it's in Bill's shed. And then in Bill's shed, it's in Jane's house. Where is it? Where is Jane? Where is it? Is it in your garage? Can you get in your garage? No. That's and it's all this stuff. And you and when you're moving it, you look at why did we want it? Why do we pursue it? And and now how can we get rid of it? But that's what we do. We we're suckers for the media of today. And we think if we get one more thing, that's going to make us happy. And God uh, says the opposite of that. Your Bible says the opposite of that. 
We are commanded in Scripture, Proverbs 4, 5, to acquire wisdom. If you're going to get something, get wisdom. If you're getting stuff, what does he call you in the Bible? A fool. You are a fool if you're getting stuff. You're a simpleton. And he tells you, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop pursuing the foolishness. But us puny little humans, we chase foolishness. And there's that bumper sticker that I love the best. That's my favorite bumper sticker of all time. I haven't seen it in a long time because it kind of went away. It said, he who dies with the most toys is dead. And I really like that. Life is a waste. You wasted your life. That is a biblically sound bumper sticker. You wasted your life chasing foolishness and you did not gather wisdom. If you're going to get something, get wisdom. Very, very little of our time is spent in the collecting, the gathering, the getting of wisdom. And nowhere is that more the case than this Laodicean church age of our lifetime. I have got to have something in my hand to play with. I do not have a dry erase marker. And it is killing me. Hey! Yeah. Comes apart and everything. I used to be able to. It's got, okay, it's good. I'm happy now. It's amazing. You know, you come up here and you don't think anything's going to bother you, but the lights bothered me last week. I couldn't see. I couldn't find the clock. I didn't have anything to write on. I didn't have anything in my hand. It's wonderful. Now, things are good. Mm-hmm. And the monitors don't work, and the speakers are forward, and you and it's dark. Oh my goodness, it's dark in here. It's perfect for the football game, though. Which is, huh? Is it not bad out there? And there's heat. Okay, we take that. And we have, we didn't have to plow the parking lot. We didn't have to shovel the walk. Yay! All of that's good. We do get in trouble for uh, not. Uh, uh, for leaving things on the stage and stuff. Uh, we'll get rid of that. We'll get better at that. Anyway, nowhere is it more the case than in our Laodicean church age that uh, we are focused on foolishness. We are focused on the simple. I keep saying that verse. How long will you love the simple? If you are somebody that does not think complexly, you are going against the the commandment in Proverbs to stop that. Stop loving simple things. Start gathering wisdom. Start loving the complex. Start loving the mysteries. And the church today is the opposite. They're keeping it as simple as they possibly can and keeping you as dumb as they possibly can. How come they want them being angry, aren't they? How come they want you to be dumb? Because if you're dumb, it's easy to take your money. And that's how, it's set, that's how it's set up now. The vi- financial viability of the church they've created. If I have a bunch of intelligently, I'm sorry, a bunch of biblically wise people, how easy is it for me to control you? It's impossible to control you. And the church is trying to control you by, because, why? Same thing. Why do I want control of the church by? Get their money. So I run my system. Get all my sons employed. Family business. You think I'm kidding about that? I'm not. It is. Watch your churches today. Sorry. Okay, not really. Fake sorry. But that's why I feel such pressure to strike a blow for serious, difficult, laborious subjects every Sunday. I know they're tough. I know they're drool infested. I know they're they're just get you a lounge chair and a and a blankie. But I want something to go into the wisdom column. 
I do. I don't want to show up at the throne with a life wasted uh, in the chase for foolishness, the simple. I don't want to be dull of hearing. He calls us. He said, the reason I can't explain something to you, Paul does, Holy Spirit through Paul in Hebrews 5. So the reason I can't explain it to you is because you're dull of hearing. That was the Holy Spirit's way of saying what? Yeah. You're so infantile, you can't understand the complex. And you love the simple. And you're killing yourself with it because the book of Hebrews is about people that could not figure out basic prophecy about the nation of Israel. So they went back to Jerusalem where they were slaughtered in the Roman invasion. And everyone should have known, don't go near Jerusalem. But they didn't. They loved the simple. They didn't lose their salvation. They lost their physical lives. They lost the lives of their children. They lost their witness. And they went to God in shame. That's what I'm trying to avoid for you and for me. And I realize my approach is problematic. It's not recommended for general audiences. It's not contemporary. It's not seeker sensitive, etc., etc. Uh, but someday, all of us, this entire church, will probably have the cliffside section. We'll all be standing before Christ. All of us. Our accounting is coming. And you will not be able to accuse me of mailing it in. And I know that. I know that I'm going to be there, you're going to be there, and I'm going to say, hey, it's not my fault. You're not going to accuse me of not telling and not warning you to quit loving the simple. Quit it. Your life will be miserable if you stay that way. You will have a miserable life. For no other practice, there's your practical application. Who says I don't do practical application? If you go through life continually loving the foolish and the simple, you will have a miserable life. Your life will be a failure. Sorry. Not really. That's how it goes. We asked last week, why does this matter? That's why it matters. Why does biblical holism, monistic philosophy, why does that matter? Because monistic or monism is intended to destroy the Bible at the fundamental place. Where's that? Genesis. If you allow monism or monistic thinking to get into you, to creep into your theology or your doctrine, you are in trouble. Once Genesis is lost, might as well just fold up. The church becomes impotent and will degrade doctrinally into the foolish things and the simple things. And every service will be simple. Every song will be simple. Every preacher, every sermon, every Sunday school class will be simple. They will be just buried in simple if you lose Genesis. That's why the creation account is so important. Here's where I have uh, bring up Troy. Troy's hiding. Troy told me in the room before the sermon that he got on Facebook and looked up biblical holism. And what did you find, Troy? He found a... Do list it. He found a atheist college professor. Typed in biblical holism. Didn't find Christians. Found an atheist college professor who was doing what? Tearing to pieces all the idiot Christians that believed it. And that, by the way, if you want to add, you want to add evolution to your your creation doctrine. If you want to say, well, I'm a theistic evolutionist. I think it's possible that God used death to make good things. I believe that there was death before Adam. I think I'll go be a progressive creationist. I'll add somehow death and destruction and, and I'll call it good because it brought us around and, and he used evolution as some form of creating us. You will be mocked. 
by the monism, monistic philosophy. They will think you a fool. And by the way, they will be right. It is not something you can make compatible. You cannot compromise monistic philosophy with scripture. Again, once Genesis is lost, might as well fold. The simple will become all that's left. Monistic philosophy versus radical dualism is the battle. It's the trenches. And you've got to know it. You've got to know it. I can't say this strong enough. The consequences of not knowing it are huge. You've got to teach your kids. That's what we've got to do downstairs. Who's ever teaching to Sunday school? He's got how old are kids down there? Twelve, maybe, at the top. They have got to know monism versus radical dualism. They've got to know how we're made, how we're designed. Why? Sooner or later, they're going to run into that professor or his buddies, and you're going to get, you're going to come back to me in a body bag, and I know it, because you can't, you can't handle the pressure without knowing the truth. Critical wisdom is this: you cannot function. Let me say this again: you cannot function. Your family cannot function. Husbands, listen to me. Your family cannot function unless you're teaching them the difference between radical dualism and monistic materialism. Your family will disintegrate. Your kids have to know this. They have to know how they're made. Yeah, and I know that's pretty bold talk from a one-eyed fat man. I know that. But that's, I believe, absolutely the truth. Okay, that's where we were last week, kind of. Is there biblical evidence for the doctrine of immortality? Can I find biblical evidence that says that I am a two-component being in the sense that I have a spirit soul and I have a physical body and they are connected together in such a way that the spirit soul part of me is controlling the physical. In other words, the physical is just simply animating my being, my mind. Louis' dad, Louis' dad came here, what, two or three months ago? Dr. Mayer came here two or three months ago, walked up here and said, if you of all people need to start doing this mind-body paradox, are you fanning yourself? Holy mackerel, honey child. I don't think that's ever happened here. We need to open a window. I don't think we've ever opened a window in the history of Cliffside Community Chapel. That's incredible. Jack, can you turn off the heat? And without getting us in trouble? Okay, thank you. Well, I don't know. If you're going to get us, if I'm going to get one of them phone calls, I'm just amazed. I, I don't, you know, I've, no offense, I've seen, yeah. No, there's a whole bunch of you doing it. It's just amazing. And, and the, that's cool, I think. Again, let me go back here. How are you made? How are you designed? How is it that you function? How is it that you think? What is your being? Where does it go? How, how, where did it come from? It's critical re- wisdom. This is wisdom here. And you cannot function in this world, in your life, properly. This is like unplugging uh, your engine or your, the battery system. You will not function if you don't know this. You'll think you function, but you won't. You'll just degrade. 
And is there biblical evidence that explains the physicality and the spirituality, the immaterial and the material, and how they fit together? Or does the Bible do what the biblical holists say? Does the Bible teach cessation of existence upon death and annihilationism? Which is true? And this is a raging debate. And there's our question. By the way, there's no middle ground here. You either believe that you are, you are spiritual and physical interacted in an incredible design that cannot be understood by a human being, by doctors. That's why Dr. Mayer said, we know doctors. Doctors know. They're not fooled by this. They're not fooled by evolution. Doctors know that we have a mind that is supernatural and we have a physical being. And, and they can't figure out how it works. But they know it's there. The advantage of being in the medical community. Does the Bible teach that? Or does the Bible teach cessation of existence upon physical death and annihilationism? As again, I said, there's no middle ground. You're going to be one or the other. You don't get to mix them both together. And we noted last week the disagreement with respect to Luke 16, 19 through 31. What is Luke 16, 19 through 31? It is where the battle is fought, frankly, in this discussion. Luke 16, 19-31, is the story. Notice how I say that. If I had my board, I'd be writing story. It is not the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Christ does not call it a parable. Whenever you read biblical holism, they constantly call it a parable. Why do they do that? Because they don't want you to believe that it's true, that it's literally true. So they try to make it into something allegorical. This is where it's fought, right here. The dualist presents... The dualistic philosophers, that's us, the dualistic thinkers, the traditionalists, we present Luke 16, 22, Lazarus, 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 and the rich man, or the rich Pharisee, if you will. We present Lazarus, 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 and the rich man Pharisee as incontrovertible proof from the mouth of Creator God Himself that humans are comprised of a supernatural metaphysical component and a physical component. That's the value of Luke 16. If you're going to know one passage in the Bible, is you're going to sit down and read to your kids, this is the one because it proves that they are a spirit soul and a physical body and the spirit soul is immortal. That's very important for them. If you don't teach them that, they come out broken. A lot of young parents here are young young couples here in this church. We have a very strong young couple church here. That's good. Some of us are really old and tired now. We'll still beat you at table tennis because i got to get a new table. i got new glasses. And I'm losing weight. Has anybody noticed that I'm losing weight? How much weight do you think I've lost? Yeah. But it still counts. It has. Because I'm playing table tennis a while back, and I'm swinging, much like my softball season. I'm swinging, and there went the ball. Louie and I, were you, were you playing when Steve Spratt was playing? That was before him. That's a great story. I'll never forget that. That's a long story. I shouldn't tell it. I won't. But that's what I am started doing, and I got to the point where my center of gravity had become so bad. Have I 
have I changed my eating habits? Watch me at the buffet. Have I changed my eating habits? No. Not a bit. This is a great diet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to market this. All I'm doing, actually I got it out of a book. All I'm doing in the morning is getting up and exercising. Imagine. Do I like it? No, I hate it. And I've got these double hernias, so I can't really do much except push-ups. I can do push-ups. So I do push-ups, and I do my little weight set, anything that will keep the, thousands of reps, and it's so boring, and I listen to the radio, and I hate it, but it starts my metabolism, and then what can I do? That's right. Hit those potato chips, baby, and I'm after it. has no impact, and it's just it's not coming off very fast, but it's coming off. And so what I'll, I'm saying all that is because I'm buying a ping-pong table, and I'm coming back. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I may be kidding myself, but it's still still okay. Lazarus. I say Lazarus over and over and over again because Christ did not call it a parable. Christ, Christ said what? He said Lazarus is the only place in all of Scripture that when he tells the story, he puts the person's name in there. That's extremely important as we get into the discussion. Biblical holism says that we are not a component that is metaphysical. We are not a com- uh, that we don't have a metaphysical component. I'm sorry, I've got to slow down. Stop. I don't have any soda. They say we do have a metaphysical component. It just ceases to exist upon the physical death of the body and has to be resurrected. So the spirit dies. What's the obvious question? What is the, yeah, yeah, how does the spirit die? How, how is the spirit made? That's how you know, by the way, you didn't evolve. I can't say it enough. There might be one or two people that haven't heard me. You can't evolve a supernatural component. So that immediately eliminates evolution as any possibility. And if there is, if there is a supernatural component, how did it get transmitted to you? How did you get it? I know it's not Charlotte. I've memorized her song. It's Tom Jones, by the way. Yeah. Whenever Charlotte comes. She's a lady, that's what. Uh, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> Biblical holism teaches that Luke 16.22 is merely a parable. And Christ says, never calls it a parable and actually uses Lazarus' name, identifies a person in his story as really existing. But biblical holism will repeat parable, parable, parable. They say it's figurative. It's not literal. It's not intended by Christ to describe the intermediate state. And they say it is absurd to interpret Luke 16, 19, 31 as a literal true event with literal, actually true people. None of it is true, they insist. No immortal soul spirit, no carried by angels. No comfort for believers, no torment for unbelievers, no judgment, just cessation of existence and annihilation and resurrection for believers. And that is classic atheistic evolutionary monism with the exception of the resurrection for the redeemed. And that is why Troy's professor mocks Christians who walk in the door with it. If you think you can be 
friends with, you can co-opt, you can somehow get along with the atheistic, monistic, evolutionary philosophers, you are sadly mistaken. They want nothing to do with you. Whereas the radical dualism side points out, or at least we should point out, that the person who is telling the story, who is identifying the people in the story, who's saying that man's name is Lazarus, that is the I am. That is the omnipresent I am. And if I was had the board, I'd write present and I would put I am because he is the only one in the present. That is the omniscient I am, the omnipotent I am. He would know, wouldn't he, when he's telling the story, what he is saying. And he named Lazarus by name. In no other parable is this the case. Someone is named. He doesn't call Luke 19.31 a parable. It's not an oversight. He's God. Would he know that someday somebody would say, oh, it's just figurative. There really isn't a Lazarus. He's outside of time. When he said Lazarus, he meant Lazarus. He isn't just throwing a story. Don't anthropomorphize him. He's God. He's thinking both directions simultaneously. He would know the consequences of not saying Lazarus. And that, do you note the instinct of biblical holism? is to strip the Godhood from Jesus Christ. They're saying, well, he's just telling a story. He really doesn't know what he's doing. He's just throwing a story. He needed a name, and he had used Lazarus. He could have used Fred. It wasn't important to him because it's not a literal story. He's not a literal person. He didn't get carried by angels. There's no intermediate state. That's what they do. He would know Lazarus, wouldn't he? He's God. He made Lazarus. He, tra- he had the transmission of Lazarus being occurred. By the way, what do you believe? Do you believe in what's basically Catholicism with regard to the transmission of being? That's called creationism. Not creationism with regard to the creation of the world, but creationism with regard to the transmission of your soul. Do you believe that? Or do you believe transducingism? Do you know the difference? If I gave you a test today, how many of you are creationists with regard to the transmission of being? Raise your hand. How many of you are transducianism with with respect to the transmission of your being? Raise your hand. How many of you could even begin to to define either term? It's critical that you know. It's critical. God would know Lazarus. And he would know Lazarus's destiny. He also knew the destiny of the rich Pharisee with the five brothers. He knew who the five brothers were. He knew which angels came and got Lazarus. He knows everybody that's in paradise with Abraham, right? And that, you see, is the point, by the way, is that he knows all of that. He knows that everybody listening to him knows something, too. What did everybody who was listening... Who is he talking to when he tells this story? He's talking to Jews. What particular kind of Jews? Pharisee Jews. Pharisaical Jews. Sadducean Jews. He's talking to people that what? Hate him. And he's telling them, oh, by the way, your rich friend Pharisee and Lazarus went to their final destinies. Lazarus went to Abraham's paradise, Abraham's bosom. The rich Pharisee, your friend, went where? Torment. Everyone listening knew Lazarus. 
I submit they didn't know his name. Everyone listening knew the beggar at the gate, but they didn't know his name. But they did know the name of the rich guy. And do you see what God is doing in the story? Which one does he name? He names the saved one. He does not name the unsaved one. Remember that thief on the cross. What does he say? Remember me when you get to where? Paradise, right? Abraham's bosom. It is not an accident. It is not a coincidence. Stop thinking like that. There are not, not ever, not one, ever, 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 where Jesus Christ, God himself, creator God, Genesis creator God, says something that is not perfect, that is not exact, that is not true. Every detail, every jottled, jittled, whatever, jottled, whatever it is. What is it? God and Tether. There we go. More medicine. No caffeine. So why? Why do we drink it? Why am I drinking it? No caffeine in it. Why? Because the wax comes off of the cup, goes inside, and I get wax poisoning. That's why. What it? Completely bad Again, Jesus Christ does not say something that isn't perfect. There's no coincidences. There's no happenstance to it. Never think that way. That's what biblical holism does. That is deity stripping. If you have an otherwise opinion, if you think that God, Christ, says something that isn't perfectly accurate, then you lack wisdom. And I'm sorry. Not really. That's a fake. Sorry. The whole point of this true story of Lazarus and the rich Pharisee is to teach us of the doctrine of immortality. That's why he did it. That's why he's saying what he's saying. I got two dead guys. Guess what? They're immortal. They keep going. One goes to paradise. One goes to God. One goes to me. The other one goes to torment. I will name the living one. Because he has life. Lazarus, I will not name the dead one. I will call him the rich man, the rich Pharisee. That's why he's saying this story. That's the point of it. They thought who went to heaven? The Pharisees. They thought the Pharisee went. They were convinced that Lazarus, that they didn't even know his name, that he was in torment because he was a beggar. He didn't keep the law. They kept the law. Their whole system was predicated, was built on convincing people that they were going to heaven. And Christ is standing there in front of them saying, Lazarus. Please notice how Christ reverses the expected. Because that is how God is opposite a foolish man. How much stuff do you think the Pharisees had? They had every snow machine, four-wheeler, motorcycle, house, boat trailer, pool table... Ping pong table, clothing, they had all this stuff. How'd they get it? They got it from the people. How did they, primarily, how did they get it from the people? Why did the people give the Pharisees all the money? Because they were selling something. What were they selling? They were selling salvation. You've got to, hey, listen, your lamb isn't good enough. Thanks for your lamb. Oh, look, a blemish. i got a lamb over here that we have certified as non-blemished. Acceptable for sacrifice, acceptable to save you. You gotta buy my lamb, baby. That'd be fifteen hundred dollars, thank you. 
And Christ said, you are hopelessly lost. You are foolish. You do not know the scriptures. God is the opposite of foolish man. And that's the way it happens a lot. It's a great big duh. They expected the rich Pharisee to be with Abraham, to be honored, to be named, to be remembered, right? He might have been the, one of the most powerful men in that community. They expected him to have all kinds of honor. But the wise would have expected what Christ revealed. And he revealed that the beggar, it was the beggar who was saved. It was the beggar who was eternally with God. It was the beggar who was remembered. It is the beggar who was named, not the rich man, the rich Pharisee. If you can do one thing in your life, what's that? Do not be a rich Pharisee. Figure out what a rich Pharisee is. Don't be one. When the pastor is the richest man in the city, we got problems. That ain't good. I'm not saying he's unsaved. Hope he's not. But you won't, uh, you won't see me think that that's a good plan. If Lazarus and the rich man were not actual, real, literal people who died on the same day, then this story makes no sense. And the words of Christ are diminished, and that cannot be true. For those of you who have heard me on, the, on Luke 16, 19 through 31 in the past, Anybody heard me do uh, the Pharisee, the rich Pharisee, and the beggar in the past? Okay. I see both of you are here today. Thank you. You would remember, wouldn't you? Maybe you'd remember that it's obvious from the text that the Pharisee is still what? Very, very wicked. What he says is very, very wicked. Go get Lazarus and have him bring me some water. That's very, very wicked. Go tell my brothers about this. That's very, very wicked. Even crying out is very, very wicked. Because he's accusing God of being what? Unjust and evil. That's right. That's the lie of Satan, as you recognize. That's Satan saying there is no solution to sin, and therefore there is no authority to judge and put people into judgment, especially put the wicked into torment because God can't solve sin. And if you uh, don't know that, see me later. Perhaps I'll repeat it next week and explain why it's so wicked. How many people have not heard me explain why the rich Pharisee continues on in that way? Evil, evil way. Okay, maybe I'll go over that next week. So, Luke 16, 19 through 31 is extraordinary proof of the doctrine of immortality, a doctrine that's essential to the creation account, find the clock, the creation account in Genesis. The origin of the supernatural component, the transmission of the supernatural component, very, very important to even any discussion of the creation account in Genesis. Now, let's move along. Where are we today? We're in Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 22, or Ecclesiastes 9.30 through 13, or Ecclesiastes 12.1 through 14. I wrote and in, each, in this case, like I was going to get all three of them done today, and I'm not. Might get one more. These three passages in Ecclesiastes, this is also where the biblical holistic crowd, or camp, they've got to bring them into dispute as well. And as with Luke 16, 
we've got to do what? We've got to reason our way through them and discern and find the New Testament complement. Luke 16, 19, 31, where's the complement in the Old Testament for those who were here last week? That's correct. It's Genesis 15. That's why I keep beating Genesis 15 into you. Specifically, this is Genesis 15, 15. That's the complement to the rich man and the Pharisee. I'm sorry, the rich man and Lazarus. And we discussed that last week. Abraham, in Genesis 15, is being gathered to his fathers. He says, Abraham, I'm gathering you to your fathers, and I'm burying the body. Thank you. I'm burying the body. How much time is on the CD, Pat? Okay, thank you. Wow, it went really fast for me again. Thank you for laughing. Okay. The supernatural, the immortal, is gathered, and the natural, the physical, is buried and goes to dust. And you should not be surprised to see Genesis 15:15. That is what Christ is explaining once again with Lazarus. And the solution to Ecclesiastes 3, 9, and 12 as well, once again, is uh, Genesis 15. It holds up so many pieces. There's so much wisdom in Genesis 15. That's why I keep telling you, pick Genesis 15, spend your life, study it, and you will have a joyful life. You will. Okay. Can't get them all. Let me just point out that they're all butchered. Ecclesiastes 3, Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes 12. I would guess 99.953% of all sermons I've heard on Ecclesiastes 3, 9, and 12 are butchered. Ecclesiastes 3 is very important because it is the living soul passage. It is the nephesh kaya passage. That's going to send you back to Genesis, right? Ecclesiastes 9 is a metaphysical, physical passage that explains to you that you have a soul and you have a body. And they are interactive, they are radically connected. Ecclesiastes 12 is a resurrection passage. So you can understand why the monistic philosophers would want to take all these on, and they'd want to address the dualistic, traditional, orthodox interpretations, and they want to change all of them into something else, specifically, as I say, cessation of existence. Why? Why do you want this? See, this is a fascinating problem for me, and Troy brought this up. Yay for Troy. Troy gets on the Internet. It's an all-Troy sermon today. Troy gets on the Internet, and he says what? He gets on Facebook. He defines all the people that are his age that graduated from high school with him. And what does he ask them? He says, what is your opinion on biblical holism or radical dualism? And the guy writes back, are you crazy? I looked it up and I couldn't even figure out what they were talking about. But what he did was give that guy a great gift. You have to understand radical dualism. Your life here on earth and elsewhere depends on you understanding. But why would you want to believe that when you die you cease to exist? It fascinates me. It fascinates me why somebody would want to know that or want to think that. I understand the, uh, the, the, then they can be a hedonist, they can get out of all accountability, but uh, you, you're still going to be held accountable, you're not going to get out of it, sorry. Not really. Okay, Ecclesiastes, find Psalms, you'll find Ecclesiastes, that's the trick. 
Here we have Ecclesiastes 9. Let's read it together and then we'll shut her down here in seven minutes or less. And we'll start at verse 3 to make it go faster. This, and I can't turn. There we go, and we didn't spill that stuff. This is, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Let me read that again. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. 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 If you don't begin to notice under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, you will fail to understand Ecclesiastes. Under the sun is Solomon's way of saying physical reality versus metaphysical reality. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Things happen to all. Truly, the heart of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's your first under first thing from Solomon. You have to figure out why a living dog is better than a dead lion. Let me compare it to Luke 16. A living beggar is better than a dead rich man, or even better, a dead beggar is better than a dead rich man. Why is it that a living dog is better than a dead lion? Which is more powerful, the lion or the dog? But this is right now, if they were both alive, clearly everyone would want to be the lion. But he's saying it's better to be a living dog. Have to define the terms. For the living know that they will die. There you go. The living know that they will die. So that means what? There are some who, who, who don't understand death. If you have life, you understand death. But the dead know nothing. Now, what do you think the biblical holism does with that? That's his, way, that's his cessation of existence, right? Immediately, he says, that's cessation of existence. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. So that he will say, see, cessation of existence. Is that what it's teaching? I'm going to tell you it's teaching the exact opposite of that. And, of course, I'm what? Yeah, I'm right. That's right. It's for you to figure out how it is. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share of anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Because you're a what? You're a living dog. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Okay, we'll stop right there, but this is a, we'll, we'll finish the rest of it next week with that, that regard. But I did this a couple of years ago. I did it on a Wednesday night. There was at least six people there. I can see one or two of them here now. But what does this mean? Why is it so consistently misunderstood? And I'll, I'll tell you, it's misunderstood, some of it, purposely. Ecclesiastes means preacher. That's what it means. So Solomon is calling himself the preacher. I am the preacher. And that is so 
ironic to me because preachers use this passage for their own agenda. There is willful, intentional misreading of Ecclesiastes 9 by those who use such to gain control over the stupid. I got to have control over the dumb because I can get the dumb's money. And there's just as many, however, who cannot understand the Holy Spirit through Solomon here. How smart was Solomon? Smarter than us. Smarter than all of us probably put together. Holy Spirit has this incredible human being write this passage. And Solomon knows what? You ain't going to get it. It's just inherent in how he thought. So there are many who cannot understand Solomon and the Holy Spirit through Solomon. What's it take to understand Solomon? What do you got to do? You got to care. You have to seek wisdom. You have to give up on the foolish. You have to devote yourself to finding wisdom. And wisdom will do what for you? This is the promise of Scripture. What will wisdom do for you today? It'll give you happiness, that's right. It'll give you peace, it'll give you joy. Wisdom is treasure. Stuff is a trick. Simple as that. Okay, how to approach this. We asked, we start with the defining of the context. I did that. The context is under the sun. Under the sun is all over Ecclesiastes. He begins in one three. Actually, begin yeah one three. What profits has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? Ecclesiastes one nine probably the the most famous of all his under the sun statements. What's that? There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. You have thought of nothing new. Somebody else has thought of it before you. That's what Solomon is saying. Nothing new. Your new idea? Sorry. Had it before. You have a whole pre-flood world out there. They were really smart. Solomon really smart. But under the sun is is very important. The consistent repeating of the phrase over and over and over again by this incredibly wise man. He asked God for wisdom. God gave it to him. Have you asked God for wisdom? Has he given it to you? Me neither. Just the way it goes for us. Solomon got it. It's very important to define, thank you, under the sun. If you don't do it right, it's going to lead to interpretive error and you will go over the side of the cliff. Ha, ha, ha. To ignore the contextual implications of under the sun will cause cliff diving. Ha, ha, ha. Thank you. To us, orthodox traditional dualists, under the sun is a duh statement. It means under the sun. Ha. We don't know that so much in my anchorage now in the winter, but under the sun means I am physically underneath the sun. I am physical life on earth. It seems obvious to me that that's what it means, but it's not to everybody. Prepare yourself for the well-dressed smiling visitors who will tell you it means something else when they knock on your door, though they don't knock on mine much anymore. 
they're going to have to circumnavigate under the sun, make it mean something else. The Holy Spirit, through Solomon, is explaining very complex issues. He's revealing mysteries. He's dispensing wisdom within the parentheses, within the brackets, within the context, within the confines of physical life on earth or under the sun. See, he starts with under the sun and he ends with under the sun. Notice 3 and 9. Everything in between is in those brackets under the sun. You see the Bible do that all the time. That's the secret, by the way, to Hebrews 6. High priest, high priest. Everything in between is in the context of the high priest. Everything in between this is in the context of under the sun. So now it's clear why a living dog is better than a dead lion. Why? It's obvious now. The living dog is under the sun. He still has physical life. And by the way, when he says living dog, he means humanity, dog people or lion people. It is better to be a little cur scrambling for it. Better to be a living beggar than a dead rich man. Why? And now you can see the true meaning of the dead know nothing under the sun. The dead know nothing under the sun. Within the context of under the sun is obvious it doesn't mean cessation of existence. At least I hope you've reasoned why that's the case. If not, I want you to consider Revelation 21:23 and Revelation 22:5, the eternal state, the restoration of all things describes the Shekinah glory of God as the what? The light source. What happens to the sun? What happens to the moon? What happens to the sea in the eternal state? Christ himself, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. He says so. He says, I am the light of the world. He means it, literally. He's the light. The only light. There won't be any light but him. There won't be any under the sun. Why not? Because there's eternal light. Okay. Look down here really fast, and then we're done. You'll have to figure it out by yourself. Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, because you're a living dog. I really like people that name their kid Caleb. Anybody done that here? Caleb needs dog. You can name him Living Caleb. Caleb Living. I think it's cool to name your kid Dog. I was thinking about naming my dog Caleb. Might, might do that. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Does God accept your works? Only when. Only when you're saved. Let your garments always be white. What's that? That's Revelation 6, baby. What's going on, Revelation 6? I got a bunch of living souls at the feet of the altar, and what does God give them? A white robe. Let your garments always be white, and your head lack no oil. So the living dog is what? Saved. It's better to be alive, because while you're alive, you can do something the dead can't do. What's that? You can get saved. And that way, once you're saved, you get what? Oil on your head, your work's accepted, and a robe, a white robe. 
That should start the football game. The unsaved dead know nothing of salvation. They can't get saved. The unsaved dead know nothing of salvation. They do not cease to exist. And the biblical holism crowd cannot allow Revelation 6 to be interpreted literally. Those aren't real people. Those people didn't really die. Whatever they say about them, they can't let that happen. Next week we'll get to that. Understand something. While you're alive, you are able to be saved. That is what Ecclesiastes 9 is saying. And that makes you better no matter what your status is in life. That makes you better than the greatest human beings that have ever lived that are unsaved dead. Is Gandhi. Big discussion when I was a kid. Is Gandhi saved? He was a great man. I won't take that away from him. Was Gandhi saved? It was a terrific fight in the church. And a few pastors stood up and said no. And how did it go for them? Not good. Were they right? Yes. Because you've got to have a robe and oil on your head. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to believe in Christ. Or you don't get a robe and you perish. You don't cease to exist. You perish. That's how it goes. That's right.